This is Resolutions, a podcast from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. I'm one of your co-hosts, Larry Schooler. I'm Director of Consensus Building and Community Engagement at the consulting firm CDNP. We hope as you listen to us this week, you are staying safe and healthy. This is obviously a very challenging time for all of us, and we're glad you chose to spend some of your time listening to our latest episode. We wanted to bring on a guest who could speak to how the challenges of the moment might affect the practice of dispute resolution. So we've called Professor Sharon Press. She is director of the Dispute Resolution Institute at Mitchell Hamlin School of Law in Minnesota and teaches in both in-person and online formats. She is a veteran dispute resolution professional and educator and has held several leadership positions in the field and earned several awards as well. Well, Sharon Press, welcome to Resolutions. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. So there's what I had planned to talk about, and then there's, I think, what we have to talk about a little bit, which is this extraordinary world that we're living in as, as we record this podcast. And I, I guess I just wonder, first of all, how you're doing uh, personally with it, but also um, how it might be impacting your, your practice uh, and your teaching in the field of dispute resolution. So uh, literally just before we, I joined you, uh, I was teaching my class remotely um, in, as just an opportunity for us to get together. And um, what we are doing is planning some training and uh, putting together materials for mediators who are going to be mediating online. Because I figured that was something that would be good for them to be working on. I want to ask what might sound like sort of an unusual question, which is, you know, given the state that we're in, what have you discovered just in terms of the significance of in-person, face-to-face interaction and communication as it relates to dispute resolution? Yeah, you know, I've I've always been a a big believer in face-to-face communication and, and, uh, you know, I think mediators kind of separate into two different categories, those who believe that uh, mediation should be conducted entirely in separate sessions um, without people having face-to-face interaction and me and others um, who are in the camp of, there's nothing that substitutes for that face-to-face interaction with people. So, you know, I, I definitely, I feel the, the distance Stepping back from the news of the day for a minute, you've had, you know, quite a, a lengthy and extraordinary career in dispute resolution that I believe began with the practice of it before you went into the, the teaching of it. And I wonder if you can just share with, with the listeners a little bit about um, what you felt became kind of your your niche or your sort of special signature that you placed on the practice of dispute resolution when that was uh, your primary focus? Um, I, my first job out of law school was working in a New York City public high school running a peer mediation program. And so my practice was uh, working with students in an, uh, high school, um, helping them to mediate their disputes, uh, doing classroom um, workshops on conflict. Um, and it was a school that was selected because it, it had um, a, dropout issues and violence in the school issues. So um, that's how I cut my teeth in this field and also in community mediation. 
And then I moved to Florida and I ran the dispute resolution program for the state court system in Florida for a number of years. But my full-time practice was not as a mediator. It was more as an administrator of the mediation programs um, and handling the grievance process against mediators, which was a, the, the ethics um, and advisory ethics opinions was something I really loved about that job. And then I, about 10 years ago, I moved to Minnesota to uh, become the director of the Dispute Resolution Institute at Mitchell Hamlin. What I love about this now is that I really have this ability to, to kind of keep a, a hand and a foot in mediation practice. And so I mediate more now than I probably ever have before, um, as well as uh, to do the, the teaching and working with students and uh, developing the program. How do you feel that the um, the teaching of dispute resolution has evolved since you've gotten into it? And I, I mean that, of course, not just simply in the, the mode of content delivery, so to speak, but just the, the nature of the curriculum and kind of the thrust of the, the takeaways you're trying to leave uh, students with. On the positive side, I think Law schools in general have gotten much more comfortable with the idea that in order for someone to be a, an effective practicing lawyer, they need to understand dispute resolution, they need to understand negotiation, they need to understand that lawyers at their core are problem solvers. And I think that the dispute resolution community has been really effective in, in delivering that message that um, one can't think about the law and being a lawyer without really thinking about what's that connection to understanding your client's interests and meeting those clients' interests and helping them to solve the problem that they come to you. It's not enough for you just to be a good advocate. You have to know what you are advocating for. So that's on the positive side. On, on the sort of the, the challenges the dispute resolution community, I think, has been facing in the academic side and particularly in law schools, um, is the declining enrollment in law schools. And so that turned into uh, both a uh, repurposing of people who maybe came in with a uh, real expertise in dispute resolution, needing to teach other courses, needing to teach core courses. And so, you know, I think if one were to look at the number of faculty members and what courses they're teaching over, you know, sort of the, a 20 year trajectory um, that, that, law, that the ADR professors are much more integrated into the regular curriculum. And I think that, like I said, that that's a, there's a good part about that. And there's also a piece of that, that, that we, we are losing some of that um, uh, specific focus. You know, one thing that strikes me as you're talking about the law school phenomenon in particular is, you know, my dispute resolution training came uh, in a social science context. And I'm curious, given how long you've been in the field and how long you've been at a law school, um, how you evaluate 
the specific placement of a program meant to train dispute resolution professionals in a law school as compared to, you know, another form of, of graduate schooling? Yeah, so I have uh, always felt really passionately that dispute resolution does not belong to the lawyers, uh, that, that it is absolutely critical to the development of this field and to the service of um, individuals that this be a multidisciplinary field uh, that that folks that come out of a variety of different backgrounds, be they social science or psychology or um, economics or you know whatever it is that that this field social work um, needs to needs all of that and and I get extremely uncomfortable when uh, lawyers and law schools try to push out the rest of this field. Um, because if anything, you know, my experience is that lawyers weren't the first ones in it. Actually, other people were, clergy, etc. Uh, and we need to be really careful, those of us who are lawyers, that, that we don't um, suck all the air out of the room on that. So while I think it is a an incredibly important and valuable uh, set of skills for a lawyer to, to have. They're not exclusive to what to to law. And one of the reasons why I was interested in coming to uh, be the director of the Dispute Resolution Institute was that the Institute has always had a program that was open to law students and everybody. So other professionals um, and professional uh, students. So, um, and that to me is, is critical. My understanding is that Mitchell Hamlin has always kind of functioned in a couple of different ways in the sense that, you know, I could enroll as a full-time law student, part-time law student, you know, take semester long courses, but I could also come to campus for say a week uh, and, and go through a course. And I guess that just makes me wonder um, about the differences in the experience for the student, the difference in the way you might design a, a course, you know, a mediation course for a week versus a mediation course for a semester, um, and, and kind of what the impetus is to continue that that kind of a schedule of a, of a compressed one as compared to a semester long? Yeah. So yeah, the, there um, always has been uh, what we call summer institutes and J-term courses, which are, you know, condensed courses uh, that, that are over a week and a half or um, a week, depending on the number of credits and the number of hours that you need to do. Um, as well as the semester long classes. And then I would add to it, um, Mitchell Hamlin, about four years ago, five years ago, uh, created an um, ability with a variance from the ABA to do online education with, in a hybrid program where students were primarily, well, most of the semester they were studying online and then they would come to campus for a week uh, in a capstone experience. And so there would, that, that way of teaching and we were, 
uh, doing skills courses in that format as well. So um, we, we have just a variety of different formats in which we, we are teaching the classes. And, and, you know, and I guess in true mediation fashion, what I would say is uh, they all have a place and they all have uh, aspects of it, which I think work really well. And one of the things that I learned from doing, uh, designing my skills course, my negotiation course for an online and teaching it was an appreciation of how much our bricks and mortar courses really preference extroverts. You know, you ask a question in the class and, you know, yeah, you may cold call people, but, you know, in skills classes, it, you're really looking for people to be giving their reactions and, in, and engaging in this, you know, robust conversation. And the people who excel in that are extroverts. And introverts have lots of really wonderful things to say, but they generally are not participating in that fashion. Now, you can draw them out, but they're not all that comfortable being drawn out in that fashion. But if you really want to hear what an introvert has to say, you put them in some kind of a discussion forum that's online. Wow. I mean, the insight, the depth, the, the, uh, all of that, it, it's wonderful. And so I think that, that as educators, we all have to sort of keep those things in mind that different things learn in different ways. Um, and then in, the, in terms of the difference between the long form courses and the short or the semester long courses and then the, the intensives, you know, in a lot of ways, the skills courses work even better intensive um, because you're immersed in it and you're just really focused on it. Um, so I, I sort of, I, I like them all. I like teaching them all. Uh, and I have found pros and cons for all of them. Um, you were talking about posting on a discussion board, I assumed. And, you know, that's what I've commonly heard called asynchronous, meaning that someone can just go on whenever they have a moment in the, in the time frame uh, and post as compared to a real-time conversation like you and I are having right now. And that's always been something that's fascinated me about education generally, particularly online, um, is the different ways that, that those forms of, of education interact. And I, I guess I'm just curious about, maybe you have a, a, an experience with a particular student where you really um, saw them shine in the asynchronous setting in a way that they didn't in live or, or vice versa, or just an understanding of kind of where each form of teaching um, produces really meaningful results. Yeah. So, so for me, it, it was really, um, and there were many students who fell into this category, this, this um, recognition. And, and I, I ended up after teaching online, bringing in asynchronous components into my bricks and mortar classes. So my bricks and mortar classes, I now include an assignment that is asynchronous uh, for that very reason, because it, it has really shown me that different students shine in different environments um, on that. And so on the in the skills courses that that we teach at Mitchell Hamlin, um, they're a combination of asynchronous and synchronous, although the synchronous activity is not everybody all together. So um, 
all of our skills teaching includes the includes role plays and simulations that that students are doing. They just don't have to have all of those students participating at the same moment in time like we do in our bricks and mortar classes. So um, the way that's designed, you know, it, in a week, they would have certain things that they are asked to do within that week's period of time. And one of them um, might be in week one, they might prepare for a negotiation. In week two, they will actually do the negotiation. And then in week three, they will submit a reflection on that negotiation or an agreement coming out of the negotiation or something that is a product coming out of it. So uh, in a negotiation class, for example, it is just the, the two students would then have to coordinate their schedule. And one of the things that I really like about that asynchronous activity, you know, when we want people to learn real skills like negotiation, it has to be real. And when you give someone a paper copy and you say, you're really angry about blah, blah, blah. Well, maybe they are angry. Maybe they're not angry, but it, it's harder for them to sort of embrace that and embrace that real, what, what is, what happens to you when you enter into a negotiation? What are those butterflies you get in your stomach when you're doing a real negotiation as opposed to just playing you're doing a negotiation? And, and one of the things that we know from doing the online asynchronous kinds of things that are going to be synchronous is they have to engage in a real negotiation with their partner. They have to negotiate. When are we going to meet? Um, one of the assignments I give them, sometimes I assign them what mode, mode I want them to do, like I want you to do, you must do an email negotiation. But I also give them on some of the, at the assignments they have, you choose. And so you have to negotiate. How are you going to conduct this negotiation? When are we going to conduct this negotiation? How are we going to navigate if something, you know, comes up and that we have to re reassign that? And those are all real life, actual negotiations that people have, um, which I think really enriches that experience to be not just the simulation, but the simulation plus. I can imagine a listener to our podcast hearing about the teaching of dispute resolution online and saying some version of bah humbug, you know, how on earth can you give a student uh, a comparable experience? And I, I would just love your, your thoughts about that. You know, when you are trying to give a student uh, as meaningful an experience online as you would in a brick and mortar class, uh, what are you thinking about? Yeah, so I, you know, I think that that it is absolutely possible to teach skills uh, in a very meaningful way, and for people to come away with it um, with both expertise and knowledge. And uh, you know, I think um, there are ways, and and one has to think about what you do, and 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 putting a class online is not the same as that the professor is showing up at the time the class was scheduled to meet in a virtual platform and conducting class in the same way that they would have conducted class 
if everyone was together, only everybody are just little icons on their screen and they may, you know, ask people to raise their hand or they may call on people, but it's, it's in essence taking a bricks and mortar class and doing it synchronously at the same time, at the time that the class was meeting. That is very different than online education. Online education involves a lot of pre-work, uh, designing really the full trajectory of your course and what are the goals that you have, what are the, the objectives that you want for all of that, and then putting together a series of experiences each week, which include things um, like assignments that are preparatory, and actually doing the simulation, reflecting, um, entering into discussions with their classmates uh, so that, that they are learning from each other, recording in advance short pieces that introduce material, assigning readings. And, and one of the things that for me was an interesting aspect that I hadn't really thought about uh, until doing, uh, you know, an online teaching in that manner is in a lot of ways, the students are held much more accountable. And I know that like, you know, some of the objection that people have to moving from bricks and mortar to online is like, you know, oh, there's people that are not going to be in front of me. How am I going to know what they're doing? This is just, you know, the, everything's going to be out of control. And the reality, if you do a, you know, really do a, a course right, um, there are lots of assessments. And so students are constantly, like no student can be left behind because if you're not keeping up with the, on the work in a bricks and mortar class, you may be able to fake that. You may be able to, to sort of coast along until that final assessment and get it done and do all the readings then. In an online course where there are assessments that you are doing every week that require you to attach it to the readings, you actually have to do those readings or you can't do well in the course. So it's a lot more um, accountable in, in many ways. I wonder if you've had a moment since you started designing and delivering courses online where you said, that's the reason that I migrated into online education, whether it be a particular student that you're confident would only have been able to take the course because it was online or just some sort of uh, bit of experiential learning that, that only seemed possible in that setting or, or something else. Oh, it's a good question. One of the, the wonderful things about Mitchell Hamlin starting this, uh, you know, hybrid program is um, we get students from all over the world, literally, uh, including people who are active military, um, U.S. citizens who are stationed in Malta or stationed in Iraq or whatever, who are engaged in our programs. One other thing about those, those students are most, many, are second career. So they bring incredible life experience into the classroom. And so it's a very robust and engaging uh, classroom experience. 
So uh, some of your listeners may be aware that the ABA runs a competition for students to do mediation representation. And because I have students that aren't all physically located here in Minnesota with me, uh, we, we let, we have the open tryouts and we take the best people for the team and wherever they are. And so this year I had a team where two people lived in Minnesota, one person lived in New Mexico and the other person lived not too far from you in uh, Florida. And we did all of our practices online because they weren't physically together. So the, the, uh, the two Minnesotans were not paired together, as it turns out, um, because we paired the people who we thought would do the best together, together. And so one Minnesotan was paired with the one from Florida and the other one was paired with the one from New Mexico. And when we went to the actual competition in Oregon, it was only the second time that these students had been sitting next to each other at the table in as a mediation representation team. And one of the things that I noticed was that they were, how great their teamwork was. And this isn't the first time I've had teams like this, who one was, because they, they practiced at a distance, they developed ways of being able to listen and hear each other and read between the lines and understand what's going on for someone at a deeper level than when you rely on when someone is sitting next to you. In addition, I found when I only had students that were with me, inevitably, we had to coach them to say, you cannot talk at the same time. You can't talk when the other people are talking. You have to wait. I never had to say that to these students. They got it. And they got it in a way that was so profound. And well, needless to say, they won, they won the region. Um, and, and it was, I, I think, so did they lose anything? I can't think of anything they lost, but they sure gained a lot. Let's suppose someone is listening who has much, much less experience than you and either wants to just do some sort of introductory seminar, you know, 60 to 90 minutes, or they really want to try to uh, dip their feet into the deeper waters of a more full-fledged course. What are some things that they ought to keep in mind? Uh, so, so I will say that there are some resources that are out there. The, the ABA has been running some webinars for folks. Uh, Noam Ebner and I did one earlier this week on teaching simulations and synchronous classes. So sort of in these transition classes. And so, you know, I think that there's a, an immediate need for people to figure out, you know, how do I do this in what was my bricks and mortar classroom and now I'm, I have to change what I'm doing. Um, and I think it, it goes back to, you know, really being uh, very intentional about what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What are the goals for the things? And then what are the different ways that you can uh, achieve those goals? Um, I'll also mention that there is an organization called Quality Matters that does um, certification of online education. 
Um, they have lots of uh, tips on, you know, what are the alignments that you need to do. Uh, we pursued and got certified. The, the negotiation course that I teach is certified by Quality Matters. Um, but there are, there are those kinds of things to think about. Just in closing, you know, we obviously are thinking very much about the wider world. And you were mentioning the possibility that, you know, the world could change in significant ways. Uh, I guess I'm curious, you know, both about what you might anticipate would change in the way we resolve disputes, as well as what might change in our relationship to technology, given what we're experiencing. Yeah, you know, I have so many reactions to it. So, you know, one, one thing that is clear to me is conflicts are not going to stop. And we're in, we're in an interesting point in time where most of our courts have stopped, at least for the, quote, non-emergency stuff. I think it... I think it's creating a vacuum and I think it's creating an opportunity um, because like I said, I, those disputes are still happening. We have to figure out as a community how to get our services to the people who are gonna be in need of it. Um, there's no question that in times of stress, the need for conflict resolution goes up, doesn't go down. And we are at a, at a point in our society of, of extremely high stress. So I don't think we yet have figured out how to meet, how to match the demand that has got to be kind of building up with the supply of people who are ready, willing, able to provide those services. Uh, so I think as a field, we need to be thinking about that. Um, and obviously, at the, at, for the immediate future, it's going to be in distance formats. I would encourage people to continue to push their, their comfort and not just do everything in shuttle caucus. Um, but, you know, there's also, I think, we're seeing the need for people to connect and that human connection, while it can't be face-to-face, -face, um, colleague this morning was saying, uh, we shouldn't call it social distancing. Um, we should call it physical distancing because the social piece of it still is necessary. And I think we have something to say about that. I think we have something to offer the world about that. So I guess those are the things that I'm, I'm hoping that, that we, that we spend uh, some some of this creative energy that we that we might have in in trying to think through those problems. Uh, Sharon Press, thank you so much for joining us on Resolutions. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for engaging me in this wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. That was Professor Sharon Press of Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Resolutions from the American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Section. We hope you stay safe and well. I'm Larry Schooler.